Fletcher here. Welcome to another Pads Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today? Doing great, Duncan. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it, friends. We've got our guest with us here today, Dr. Chris McLeod, who's a professor with the Department of Sport Management, again, at the aforementioned University of Florida. He is a Gator. Uh, we're very glad to have him on the call today. How are you doing, Chris? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me, Duncan. Glad to uh, glad to have you. And I think maybe right out of the, out of the gate, we should address you're talking with that uh, Kiwi accent. Maybe give us a little bit of background on your, on your, your, you know, how did you end up at the University of Florida? What's your background? And how do you find yourself doing uh, the, the athlete development research that you've been doing over the last few years? Yes, I'm from Aotearoa or New Zealand. And I uh, did my undergraduate studies at University of Otago and the physical education program. Um, I moved to... Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, I followed a professor over here who was in my undergraduate, and I studied sport management at Florida State University. Got my first job at Texas Tech University, which is Lubbock, Texas, about as far in the middle of nowhere as you can find. <laughs> and then I moved to University of Florida or oh, 2020. Um, I've been studying athlete-related issues. Uh, pretty much my whole education. So my my research when I was in my undergraduate was on um, youth tennis clubs, and I sort of just built on that. Um, mostly, I'm issued interested in athletes because one, I think that they are the key resource in the whole sport industry. Um, without them, there's nothing. Um, and therefore, I think we have an obligation to do the best that we can to uh, help and support them, make sure that they're not just high performing, but happy, healthy, that they have somewhere to go when the, when the industry's done with them as well. Yeah, I completely agree that uh, I think most of the people that are working in the field of athlete development would agree with that assessment that without athletes, what are we watching? Not a whole lot of anything really at the end of the day. So they're, like you said, a, a very critical resource. And I think, you know, um, having the chance to go through some of your research and actually having the, the opportunity to connect with you previously, I think one of the things that kind of jumps to mind, and I know you've done a lot of work in the baseball space, and one of the fascinating things that you researched was this idea of how you change an athlete's perception of how they are going to move forward in their careers. Are they going to continue to ascend and promote to the highest levels? And I think you were kind of describing, are they overly optimistic? Are they, are they not really recognizing reality? And then when you look at it that way, it's a fascinating question. You know, how are athletes perceiving where they are in this process? And I would love to kind of get your, your perspectives on what led you to that research question? How did you research that? And if you sort of come to this conclusion is, you know, how can we actually change athletes' perceptions uh, of reality so that they're being more, I guess, realistic about, you know, what their, what their future may actually hold. Yeah, this is, um, this project started working with more than baseball. It's an organization designed to help minor league baseball players, uh, in all sorts of ways. So like they provide support for continuing education. They provide some financial support essentially trying to help minor leaguers deal with the stuff that goes on in their lives. 
This specific question about unrealistic optimism came about because there has been some research suggesting that athletes are nearly delusionally um, optimistic about things. So a good example of that would be the NCAA goals study. The most recent version found that players across all divisions had reasonably strong expectations of playing professional um, or going to the Olympics. And we're even talking about athletes in like division three. So a lot of people have sort of, at the end, there's this very common stereotype about the unrealistically optimistic athlete. So we wanted to get into this. The great thing about minor league baseball is that there's all this data that exists on players' career progress and performance. So you can actually make a really nice prediction about whether a given player is likely to make it to the majors or not. That's impossible to do pretty much anywhere else, um, any other field of work. So what we've found is that players are unrealistically optimistic. They overestimate their chance of reaching the majors and they underestimate their chances of being cut or released. But they're not delusionally optimistic. So if you ask players the right questions and ask them in the right way, you find that they are overestimating the chances that good stuff will happen to them, but not by too much, say maybe 20%. The other thing that we've found, and the thing that I think is really important, is that these unrealistic expectations change the way that players evaluate injustices and uh, how they make decisions. So specifically, minor league baseball players know that they're unfairly paid. They're very well aware of that situation, but they are willing to tolerate unfair pay because they expect to make it to major league baseball in the future. And there are other ways that, that, that the expectations influence them. Um, so that, for example, they often don't speak out about work conditions because they expect to make it and they worry that if they speak out, that will inhibit their chances. Um, so that's a big problem for me. The other thing that we've found is that we can try to keep those expectations closer to being realistic, if that makes sense. And the best way to do that is to get players to what we call in the literature enumerate, to plan it out. What is the probability that you're going to be at this level next year? If you make it to that level next year, then what is the probability that you'll make it to the next level after that? When players really dig into it and, and think carefully about the pathway, they give a much more accurate estimate about their chances of making it. The same thing when you ask them to think about the chances of getting injured, released, etc. I've also tried to give them the information on their personal chances. So we made this prediction algorithm. It allows us to give a personalized prediction to each player based on where they're drafted, their position, how well they've performed so far, their progress through the minors so far. Giving them that information was not very effective. Um, but that might just be because of what we call sender characteristics. So what I mean by that is when you get information from somebody, you don't just evaluate the information, you also evaluate the person giving you that information. Is this person trustworthy? Does this person have the authority to give me that information? As a researcher, I am 
probably not the person that uh, athletes would trust the most. And I don't necessarily have the authority to tell them that. So like if a coach, for example, or somebody within the system, somebody that they trust gave them that information, it would likely be a little bit more effective. So we haven't really had a chance to dig into this much, but I think that's important to think about from an athlete professional standpoint about how you might be more likely to, to, to be able to use information effectively. Well, to, to quickly just step in there, just so that people who are listening can understand this. So when you showed them their probability of making it and you gave them this algorithm and you kind of dropped it on them and said, this is what the math says. Can you talk a little bit about piecing that together and then how you actually presented that? And then obviously sort of continuing that same pathway would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So the overall approach we used was what I call a career tree method. And the career tree method asks them first to lay out the how their career is likely to develop in a tree. So it accounts for the fact that you could go up, you could go down. What's the probability that you go up next year? What's the probability that you go down next year? What's the probability that you're released, etc.? We did that for three years into the future. And um, after they did that exercise, we showed them a tree in exactly the same format, but based on our predictions. So they were able to see um, the probabilities that we had created from an analysis of about 8,000 minor league baseball player careers of players drafted and signed between 2003 and 2011. So we showed them their tree. We showed them the tree that we created, and we just asked them to look at those, identify the differences for a minute, uh, and then we summarized some key points and asked them about would they change their tree after seeing the information we presented? Would they change their expectations? I also asked them if it changed their aspirations because what I did not want to happen was for players to lose their aspirations of, be of becoming Major League Baseball players. All I wanted to do was to help guide those expectations to be a little bit more accurate so that they could make good decisions for themselves, for their families, for their careers, etc. Did that answer your question, Duncan? No, it did. Absolutely. And, and I have a follow-up just as I was listening to you when you started the response about the optimism. Um, I call a generation the certificate generation. Um, I remember growing up and when I played sports, you either got a, a trophy or a prize or you didn't. Um, you wanted first place ribbon if you are in a sport that has a ribbon. You wanted the trophy. Anything else you were not happy with. Fast forward, it's all about being inclusive and um, ability for everyone to participate, which I get. But then there's that expectation, I should always get a trophy. I should always get that certificate. And so I wonder if that plays into that optimism. Well, I've always gotten something. I've always done well, even if it's a false sense of self. So now as they've gone further, you know, it's interesting. I worked at a D3 institution. And the likelihood of someone going in professional sports is almost non-existent. You know, only 1% go pro in Division 1, 2, or 3. So, um, and most likely it's going to be in um, Division 1 unless it's some of the Olympic sports like fencing. So I just wonder if you've ever thought about kind of the root of where this perspective comes from. That's a great question. So where does the unrealistic optimism come from? I think it's 
deeply embedded in the culture of sport. Um, there is a, a taken-for-granted assumption that you have to be unrealistically optimistic to make it to the majors. And that's one of the things when I, when I ask players, like, you know, okay, why did you not really uh, take on board the information that I gave you? They would say things like, this is baseball. If I'm not confident, I, I, I cannot succeed. Um, this is really interesting to me because it could be true. We don't have the data or the research yet to determine whether what the consequences of unrealistic optimism are for players' careers. We don't know that in any field whatsoever. So the next study I'm designing in this um, research line is actually to determine whether being unrealistically optimistic helps or hurts your chances. That's a question I can't answer yet. What I, what I, what I think we do have pretty good reason to think is that unrealistic optimism, where it has the most consequences, is the alternatives. What you could do if you were, you were not playing baseball or preparing for a transition out of baseball, something like that. Where, where these unrealistic expectations come from, that's part of it. But they're also encouraged and selected based on their unrealistic optimism. Um, players don't get the information that they need to make accurate expectations because either front office coaching or scouts are not willing to give it to them or they don't have the information themselves to give to them. So there's a lot going on. Probably it starts really young, Stephanie, with the, the trophies and the parents saying that you're definitely going to be a professional athlete with coaches saying you're the best thing that's ever happened to this team the whole way through. I think it's part of the culture and the system of sport. Yeah, and that's where I was going to add, you know, they're almost conditioned your whole life as a parent. You're trying to be supportive, but there's a fine line of encouragement and then um, kind of blowing smoke up someone, you know, and and I think that as the individuals go throughout their journey, there is you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. Probably it's to motivate and to drive. But um, my father used to always say there's a difference between confident and being cocky. And it's the confidence and the belief in your current abilities and abilities to um, achieve more, but within realistic expectations. And I think there are so many individuals, you know, you hear the parents, he's the, he's the next Jordan, he's the next um, messy, you know, depending on the sport. And it's just unreal, unrealistic expectations. They're, they could be a phenomenal athlete. They could be talented. But to be at that level, very few and far between. I'll, I'll add to that. The distinction that I usually make is between optimism and unrealistic optimism. So optimism, I think of it as no matter what happens to me, I'm going to be able to make the best out of that situation. That's very different from unrealistic optimism, overestimating the chances of something happening. Optimism is important. It's crucial, probably, for, for um, a mentally healthy personality, for being able to cope with stress. Unrealistic optimism is a different matter entirely. And we actually find in the research that optimism and unrealistic optimism do not correlate. So what I mean by that is, just because you're, you have an optimistic disposition does not necessarily mean that you'll be unrealistically optimistic. So it's really this unrealistic optimism as a separate thing that's different from optimism as a coping strategy. That's the thing that I think we need to be careful about. And 
to put that in the language that Stephanie just used, I think it's the difference between confidence and, and cocky would be one way to think about that. So out of curiosity now that you've had the chance to go through this study and you've, you know, you've looked at how athletes are reacting to the information that you're providing them, from your perspective, can you significantly shift an athlete's perspective? And is that shift generally seen as positive? I have not been able to significantly shift an athlete's perspectives. I, I have a few other ideas um, that I think might work and maybe I can share with them after. What I have been able to do is get players to recognize themselves a more accurate expectations. So when they break it down and when they look at it, here's each step that I need to take to reach my goal, that's when they're more realistic. And there's a good shift there. That, I, I don't see how that can be bad. I want to know about the consequences of unrealistic optimism for making it or not making it before I dig too much deeper into trying to, to change these expectations. I suspect that being unrealistically optimistic doesn't help and doesn't actually hurt whether you make it to the majors. But I anticipate that it hurts for those other things, the preparedness for another career, that type of stuff. Well, it kind of reduces the athlete's aperture in terms of what they're willing to look at would be my hunch. And then, like you said, if you aren't willing to explore interests or opportunities outside of the game. I think there's a lot of research that now supports that, well, that's actually going to negatively impact your ability to perform in the long run. So I'm quite curious to see how that plays out. And then, you know, interestingly, I think that ties into, you know, one of the other efforts you made from a research perspective, you know, you would reference more than baseball, um, where you were looking at minor league baseball players and their, their challenges with financial support. And, and what they and what they really need, and, and in kind of having glanced through that that research, it was a little bit jarring uh, in terms of some of the challenges that minor league baseball players face. And obviously, that's been in the news over the last little last little bit. But I guess the question that jumped to my mind, having watched you or sort of having read the stuff that you were going through as you're you know going through this research, is how do you feel that the players themselves are reacting to the financial stress that they find themselves under? And then turning to a group like more than baseball. Yeah, they. I think they struggle, um, and I think they struggle differently depending on the types of resources they have available. So it's not just that all players struggle; it's that it, it introduces some type of developmental inequalities into the game. The big thing that I'm advocating for at the moment, based on some research that I've I've been doing um, in minor league baseball is to think about pay and income as an investment in athletes. Money gets a bad rap because it's seen as this extrinsic motivator, something that might take away from intrinsic motivation or at certain levels that money might um, corrupt or lead people to value or work for the wrong things. And that might be the case when we're talking about extremely high pay levels. But for most people, income is an input into human development, especially at those lower income bracket levels. So, for example, minor league baseball players, when they get extra income, and the way I was able to study this is um, more than baseball had a grant program in 2020 and 2021 where they uh, gave players about $500 if they had financial need. 
that might not sound like enough and much, but in the context of minor league baseball players' salaries at the time, that would have been somewhere between 5 and 15% of their overall um, baseball income. About 20% of the players, when they get that money, they spend it on things that they see as essential for their development. Protein, recovery, trainers, um, new equipment. They reinvest it in themselves to make themselves better baseball players. The rest spend it on things like rent, food, transportation, and paying off debt. And it's in about that order. So most of them spend it on rent. When they spend it on these, these items, what they're really doing is relieving a burden, like a, a source of stress and anxiety, which is important for all sorts of reasons. But if you're a person that just cares about athletes' performance, the reason it matters for that is because it allows them to focus and concentrate on being the best athletes that they can be. We also, I also found that about 30 to 50% of players spent money on someone else, like their family. This was especially the case for Latino players. They often have to support their families um, in all sorts of ways. So that re- relieves a different type of stress or anxiety around being able to feed someone or help pay for someone's medical expenses, things like that. So that's... I think if we change the way we think about money in sport from being a reward or an incentive to being an input into athlete development and investment in these athletes, then I mean, that's what I'd advocate for, for anyone who's in in a position to affect athlete pay. Most, uh, many professionals who are listening to this podcast might not be in a position to affect athlete pay, but there are other things that you can do to help athletes with economic security and stability. I, I do find it interesting, like you said, that a lot of the athletes were investing back in themselves. And if you don't have a place to live and you can't eat, that's going to significantly impact your capacity for performance. I guess, were there anything else that when you were looking at, what else surprised you about this research? Because again, I think it's particularly timely. And I'm curious, what else jumped out at you as you were going through this process uh, of talking to these athletes about their experiences? That's a good question. I'll list a few things. And one of them was um, at the start of the project, it was before Major League Baseball had announced that they were going to provide housing, but the housing hadn't been offered yet. Uh, I asked players, would they rather receive the housing money just as money or as housing? And initially, they wanted it as money, which makes sense. They wanted the choice. Um, players are in different situations. Some have families, some don't. They wanted the choice to be able to and get the housing that was best for them. After the housing program was implemented, I found that more players w- would prefer the housing than the money. And the reason is because one, the housing was actually of good quality. And two, the main benefit that they saw with having the housing provided was not just having the housing provided. It was that they didn't have to make those difficult choices around getting housing at the start of the season. So sometimes players have to go from spring training, find a place to, to stay in like a, a week or three days, something like that. That's incredibly stressful. So one of the things that we can do if you can't provide athletes with extra money is provide some type of service or resource that removes those types of decision-making sources of stress as well. The other thing is how players like respond to, no, how they 
personify organizations that help them. They were still so skeptical of Major League Baseball, even when Major League Baseball was providing them with more resources, because they didn't see it as, hey, look, they're, they're caring for us. They saw it as, uh, here, here's some money so that you'll shut up and, and stop complaining about things, or here's something so that we don't come off so bad to the press or the public. So there's a, there was a general feeling that they just were not cared for, that they were treated like, like cogs. Um, I had a few people say, like cattle, uh, I'm a piece of meat, those types of things. Um, so that's, I think, on top of anything that you're doing to provide support for athletes, like it, that, that perceived relationship between the organization and the athlete or the actors for the organization and the athlete is also really important. Completely agree with you. I think it's, it, it is fascinating when you start to think about how critical some of the base elements are to driving performance and, and positive outcomes both on and off the playing surface. And that from an organizational perspective, that if you know, teams and, and um, the leadership within those teams are, are taking proactive steps to support their athletes in that way, it isn't necessarily a, a, a draw on resources. It's actually sort of expanding the capacity of them. So I think that's really interesting insight. Steph, I'm going to throw it to you. Do you have a question on any of that out of curiosity? Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, based on the research you've done and, and these findings, what other research do you think needs to be done to continue to support, you know, athlete development? Well, <laughs> that's a, there's so much that needs to be done. This is so, such a, such a, um, emerging field in my mind it hasn't really been like codified into a discipline yet all the projects that i've told you about today need more research so we're trying to do more um i want to actually measure how income and wealth affects athletes development and performance um, i think that's crucial for all sorts of discussions that we're having at the moment especially about when it comes to like supporting um women professional athletes, where we just don't see the same pay levels. The Golden Goose study that I think would be fantastic is just really, really strong, irrefutable research showing how holistic athlete development affects performance. We often work under that assumption, and there's a lot of research around that. But strategically, I think we need to be able to convince all stakeholders that an investment in athletes' holistic development pays off for their performance. Not necessarily because I think that's the only thing that matters, but because I think that's the most likely thing to convince the various stakeholders in the sport industry to provide those resources and support where we need them. Thank you for that. So I guess the, the, the interesting thing now is, and, and I'm just kind of thinking about your research into the the sort of delusionally or unrealistically optimistic. As you enter into that research process and you start trying to, like you said, design that, that process, what are some of the challenges as you go through that to kind of, to, like I said, I just find that fascinating as to how you're going to approach that problem. Because I agree with you that as you start looking at it, you know, there probably is a high degree of unrealistic optimism. And, and how does that impact your actual capacity to make it? I find that fascinating. So I guess really, I just kind of want to riff with you a little bit more on, on how you're approaching that problem and, and then what are the implications as to how you address it 
like you said, it starts potentially when these guys are and gals are, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and then it follows them all the way up the chain. Um, and, and and as I'm just kind of noodling on that, I find that a, a particularly interesting challenge because if you actually find out that perhaps it's negative or perhaps those unrealistic things, you have to push that intervention back as deep as you can. So I'm just curious as you approach that problem, and it's it's a, actually it's a massive one when you think about it. So I'm just curious, how are you approaching that? Well, I've requested about $300,000 from the National Science Foundation to, to try and tackle that. Money's so a good place to start, is, right? Well, that's one of the things I find in my research. So I thought I, I may as well go that route. No, it's um, so thinking about the study, um, this is I, the research that exists on, on unrealistic optimism. There's a lot of it on what causes it. And there's almost nothing on the consequences of it. We do not know if it's good or bad. The research that has been done on the consequences is mixed. So we find like that even in education, if we're studying people's test performance, one study says it's good. One study says it's bad. We can look at this across a whole bunch of domains. There's just not a clear answer. The innovation that I have brought to this is by distinguishing between three different types of outcomes. Focal outcomes. Focal outcomes are the outcomes that you are unrealistically unreal- optimistic about achieving. I am unrealistically optimistic about making it to the MLB. Does that help me actually make it to the MLB? Alternative outcomes are the outcomes that you forego or give up, the opportunity cost of being unrealistically optimistic. I'm unrealistically optimistic about reaching the MLB. How does this affect my uh, success in a secondary career when I when I leave the sport. Tertiary outcomes are not conceptually related to unrealistic optimism, but they still might be beneficial or costly for people. I'm unrealistically optimistic about reaching the MLB. A tertiary outcome might be coping with stress. Does it help me cope with stress? Um, does it make me happy, unhappy, etc.? The key to answering this question is to st- First, determine whether unrealistic optimism helps for those focal outcomes. It turns out all the other research has been pretty much on tertiary outcomes. We need to hit the focal outcomes first because the first thing that we need to know is whether being unrealistically optimistic about reaching MLB helps or hurts reaching MLB. Then after that, we talk about the alternatives and only after we've answered both of those that we then go to the tertiary outcomes. I think we can answer this question in minor league baseball. Specifically, uh, we can make predictions about whether any given player is going to make it. So we can measure their unrealistic optimism by comparing their expectations to predictions. That should give us a, 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 the difference should be the um, unrealistic optimism. So if I think my chances are 30%, whereas the prediction says they're 10%, then I'm 20% unrealistically optimistic. Then if I follow you for the next three years and see if you actually make it, I can answer that first question. Does being more unrealistically optimistic help me get there in the end um, or not? Or does it hurt? So that's, that's the, the crux of the study. Um, I think the, I, it's a super complicated question if we find that it helps. If unrealistic optimism helps minor league baseball players, now you've got a situation where 
It's in each player's best interest to be unrealistically optimistic, but it's a zero-sum game. Only a handful of players are actually going to make it. So if we increase unrealistic optimism for everybody, let's just say by 20%, still only the same number of players are going to make it. That's where it gets complicated to me. That's like a, like a paradox that I haven't really figured out yet. If we find that it doesn't help, that has some immediate implications. I can show this to minor league baseball players. I can show this to coaches. I can encourage front offices to give players information when they, when they ask for it, at least. Um, maybe players don't want to know. That's okay. But if they ask for it, they should get the information that they want. I can show that to players to show them that they don't need to be unrealistically optimistic to make it to the majors. Um, if it hurts, that's probably a little bit more powerful of an argument, um, but it also means that we need to take more action to try and rectify the misconception that unrealistic optimism helps. Uh, I think it's, a, I'll also say that this is a bigger study than, than sport. There's all sorts of people all over the labor market who are doing things. Delusion isn't confined to athletics necessarily. <laughs> No, it's not at all. And I mean, think about internships. Internships are sort of like minor league baseball. You go work for no pay or little pay based on the hope or expectation that you get a job afterwards. Um, graduate assistants, people who are trying to get their PhD, they're doing it because they think they can get this cushy uh, professor job when they graduate. But those are pretty hard to come by these days. So I think there's it's 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 bigger than minor league baseball. Minor league baseball happens to be the best place in the world to answer the question because we can make predictions about who's who can who's going to make it and who's less likely to make it. Well, I think it goes without saying. I'm eagerly awaiting the results of that research when it comes through because that is uh, that is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and like you said, the implications across all sort of the three domains of how you find it are going to be particularly compelling no matter how it falls in. And I hadn't even thought of what if optimi what if being unrealistically optimistic is a benefit? That is a, a fascinating question. Well, I think that's probably a great place to wrap it up, Steph, unless you have any other questions. No, thank you so much. This was definitely informative and um, some, some things to, to think about based on our dialogue today. Yeah, this was a really cool conversation. And again, clearly to the folks out there in Padsland, if you haven't had a chance to check out Dr. Chris McLeod's research, I suggest you... Uh, Hop on the Google and get after it and get into his research. And obviously, if you're interested in connecting with Dr. McLeod, we'll make sure we provide that opportunity uh, for you. So again, Dr. McLeod, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time to connect with us. Thank you for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you again. Thank you.